0: It's Thursday, October the 5th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, but I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who is dabbling in podcasting these days. Just don't take my word for it. I suggest you go to the Hoover Institution website, which is hoover.org. On the tab, click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Head over to where it says multimedia. And up will pop about a dozen plus audio podcasts, including this one, which is at the top of the list. And humble brag, I think it's at the top of the list because I endeavor to get the best and brightest of the Hoover Institution on this podcast, today's show being no exception. My guest is Norman Naymark. Norman Neymark is a senior fellow courtesy at the Hoover Institution, the Robert and Florence MacDonald Professor of Eastern European Studies at Stanford University, and a senior fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spoley Institute. Professor Naymark is an expert in modern East European and Russian history. His current research focuses on Soviet policies and actions in Europe after World War II and on genocide and ethnic cleansing in the 20th century. Norman, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Nice to be here.
0: So thanks to Bonner Technology, we're able to have this conversation despite being nine time zones apart. I am in California. It's early in the morning. You, on the other hand, are in Europe late in the afternoon, early evening. Tell me what you are doing very far away from the Stanford campus.
1: Uh, well, I'm actually in, in some fashion on the Stanford campus. That is to say, I'm in the Stanford Briar Center. It's a uh, palazzo right on the Arno River across from the Uffizi in Florence, and I'm teaching here, a course, uh, with my wife on fascism and World War II in Italy uh, to a group of Stanford students. There are 45 students who are here, and uh, they're having a great time learning Italian, getting to know Italy. And it's fun to be here with them, and it's fun to be here,
0: period. Question, Norman. Do you run into any of the locals, into any of the locals, ask you what is going on with American politics? You happen to be there at a time when... Congress is in disarray. The current president's family is under federal investigation. The former president's on trial in four different
1: venues. How do you explain this to the Italians? Um, I don't try because uh, I have trouble to explain it to myself. <laughs> and, and you know, Bill, one of the interesting things uh, which you surely know, too, about uh, traveling around the world is that Italians are into Italy and then you know there is talk about you know the election what do i think about the upcoming election and trump and that sort of thing but i don't think they watch uh, our uh, congressional uh, wrangles all that closely in part because they're used to them they have them all the time i mean the italian parliament is you know uh, uh, one of the greatest examples of continuing chaos uh, in 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 world uh, history of politics. so I don't think they think much of this, and I think it's pretty normal. Even I watched a news broadcast uh, last night. They did have a, uh, a correspondent from Washington reporting on uh, what's going on. and uh, you know, it seemed a fairly normal um, uh, you know, part of their idea what America is about and what politics is about. The you know their their political situation, as you know, is is quite chaotic as well. That is true. Uh,
0: so today Norman, I want to talk about war and history in Eastern Europe. And I want to look at let's start by looking at past wars in that region. You look at World War II, for example, um You're the historian, I'm not, but I would affix World War II to ideologies, among other things, fascism versus communism. World War I, Russia gets involved in that fight. That's about alliances. That's Russia supporting Serbia. But here we are, Norman, we're looking at Ukraine and Russia, which has now uh, been going on for over a year and a half, 19th, 20th month approaching. Um, What is the difference here? Because I look at this war, Norman, and I don't see a war necessarily about... Oh, acquisition. I don't think Vladimir Putin has an appetite for wheat. I don't think he's looking to build more villas along the Black Sea. In other words, I don't see ideology here at work. I don't see alliances here at work. So tell me what what is driving this war?
1: I mean, it's a great question, and it's uh, I think the answer is complicated. I think there are many things. Uh, this is not a monocausal war. Most wars are not monocausal, but you know, after all. Japanese did attack us in Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. So in some fashion, you can say that that's the war uh, and the Germans then declared war on us. So um, uh, this war uh, strikes me more than anything else as an effort on the part of Putin uh, and and the uh, Russian leadership, you know, to try to do a kind of uh, a fast move uh, in Ukraine. And that fast move would be to uh, get rid of the Ukrainian political leadership, uh, replace it with a leadership that they liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be a much bigger gain than let's say Belarus, you know, which is a, a, a dependency uh, on Moscow, if not uh, in Russia itself. I think they thought they could do something similar in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they had you know, in Yanushko, Yanukovych, the previous uh, prime minister, you know, they had someone here who was willing um, uh, and, in part, able to do their bidding uh, in Ukraine, and it would keep Ukraine part of, you know, the the Russian world as they call it, the Ruski Mir, and you know that's that's what they wanted. They did, and, and as Ukraine became more democratic as it looked increasingly to the West, you know, as the Maidan demonstrations uh, showed that the Ukrainians, and by say Ukrainians, I mean here Ukrainian people, and much of the Ukrainian political leadership was interested in joining the EU. I mean, I don't think this was a NATO issue. I think it was much more a Europe issue. Mm -hmm. Looking West, in other words, um, I think... Putin thought that he could cut this movement short, and uh, and I think he badly miscalculated. And once you get into a war like that, and this goes back to your other examples, World War One, mm-hmm. you know, where people thought the war would be over in a few months, and that each each party thought their war aims would be accomplished uh, within you know uh, a relatively short period of time. I think he thought his war aims could be accomplished in a relatively short period of time, and therefore they moved and they got stuck. And they got stuck in an awful conflict from which I think they feel they cannot withdraw. Um, And the Ukrainians, of course, uh, are feeling uh, quite the same, uh, that they um you know need to fight for their land and for their freedom and for their uh uh, um sovereignty Mm -hmm. and the result is um you know we have a terrible war in this part in the eastern part of europe that um you know is a drag on both societies uh, killing people both places that are ruining certainly the political system of russia we don't know the long-term effects on ukraine i mean short term effects on Ukraine are quite positive. Um, But uh, I I, I just think it's a tragedy. And, you know, one of those mistakes in history that shouldn't have happened and but does routinely happen. And, um, uh, you know, we're in a, a really bad place, is my view.
0: We were emailing back and forth the other day, Norman, and you wrote something that caught my attention. You said this war is above all about empire history and Ukrainian and Russian self-conceptions. Can you explain the latter, Ukrainian and Russian self-conceptions?
1: Yes. Um, I mean, the uh, Russians think of themselves, you know, and, uh, you know, Putin has articulated this in various ways in various places, you know, as kind of the, the senior East Slavic brother mm-hmm. and in some fashion as the East Slavic people i mean there's a kind of ambiguity in his thinking but but we won't worry about that and they think of themselves as generous as protecting other East slavs as you know the great slavic people uh who um you know over the the, the centuries you know has been um the uniter of, of, of Slavs in this part of the world, and as uh, the natural leader of Slavs in this in this period. So, you know, this reflected itself in the Russian Empire, in the Imperial Russia, which was founded with Peter the Great and, and went until 1917. And it was reflected in some ways in the Soviet Union as well, where the Russian uh, uh, part of the Soviet Union was considered Russians, were considered in some senses superior Mm -hmm. and, you know, more important, more central uh, to the mission uh, of Imperial Russia. And so this mission of Imperial Russia, this sense that, you know, this body of people, this geopolitical entity um, deserves a place uh, in the world that is special. Uh, You know, it's a mission. It's more than just... um, you know, a, a, a big uh, country, It it is a missionary country. And that missionary country believes that Ukraine uh, is part of its body. And by separating Ukraine, which Ukrainians would like to do, say, wait a minute, we're not part of your body, we have our own. Um, and by separating from uh, Russia, from Moscow, uh, you know, Kiev is throwing down the gauntlet in some ways for for Moscow and for Putin mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, for for the Russians, uh, for Putin. And, and this I think I also wrote to you, this is this is developed powerfully during this war. In other words, history keeps changing all the time. And yes. uh, the beginning of the war was, you know, in some senses about one thing. And the war now is about something else in some fashion. It's about, uh, you know, Ukrainian, uh, uh, the Ukrainians ability to say to the Russians, no, we we're not part of you. We don't want to be part of you. And we're going to be part of the West. And uh, and as a result, this, you know, aggravates uh, how the Russians think about the Ukrainians even more and about us. And, you know, here we are, the Americans, you know, tearing a part of their body away from them. So it's a, you know, it's a very serious, nasty, and in some ways, as I said, imperial uh, view on the part of the Russians. Now, the Ukrainians, I mean, this has been really interesting, uh, you know, to any historian is to see how they have developed, especially over the, the period of the war, but also since Maidan. Uh, in 2014, and since the turn of the century, you know, a, a kind of identity as Ukrainians, uh, a unity as Ukrainians, which simply wasn't there before. Um, you know, they are building and making a nation. I mean, we're seeing a nation being made, a very powerful nation. You know, a very committed nation. Nations are always in the process of making, and in some cases, I'm making. But Ukraine is being made, and it's um, it's very impressive uh, the unity that they show, uh, their sense of purpose, uh, you know, their willingness to fight uh, in the cities, you know, Kiev and Lviv in the east and Kharkiv and other places, you know, this determination to live a normal life. Uh, during this war. Um, And, you know, to create a kind of political entity that really wasn't there before, in -hmm. the sense of, again, a feeling of unity, a feeling of national uh, identity. I mean, there's no question anymore that people want to speak Ukrainian, they don't want to speak Russian, you know, Russophone Ukrainians are now learning and speaking Ukrainian. And and so you, you get a real sense of a nation being made during this war. Norman, the United States of America has been around
0: for almost two hundred fifty years, and if you talk to Americans who know their history, they can point to seventeen seventy-six. They can point to the Civil War. They can point to Pearl Harbor. They can point to various flashpoints and various ways in which the republic has evolved. But Ukraine's history is far more complicated over a shorter period of time. You go back to nineteen eighteen and the uh, what well, the Ukrainian People's Republic. You Rather, have yeah. you, know, you have the fight with the Bolsheviks, and you have it as an SSR. You now have it, of course. My question is, if you are a Ukrainian Norman and you, what do you fall back on in terms of the history of your country? What what do you look at?
1: Well, I mean, um, this is precisely the, the the nation building that's going on. And right. historians are a big part of it. Because, and, and I, and, you know,
0: it that Norman in contrast to what Putin is trying to do, in which he is trying to essentially evoke Peter the Great and the idea of oh, Russian right. Empire,
1: right. right, right. Well, and, and, the, and the Ukrainians are doing something similar. Yep. And that is, first of all, they'll go back uh, to the Kievan realm, right, from the 10th century. And the Kievan realm, you know, has been analyzed in various ways by historians. And there's some arguments about what it was, what it wasn't. Is it Ukrainian? Is it Russian? Um, you know, both claim uh, the Kievan realm. And what, you know, Ukrainian historians are doing or working with Kiev, this Princedom this great Princedom by the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, over a period of two and a half centuries, it was probably the most developed. Part of europe altogether i mean you know the the ancestors of the french and the germans were living in these cold castles you know fighting uh fighting um uh, on horseback and uh rescuing damsels and that kind of thing in kiev i mean they had real you know real cultural development real book learning real uh, uh, developed christian uh, uh, theology eastern christian theology versus western christian theology and so on. So the Kievan realm itself has become, you know, part and parcel of this historical uh, heritage which they can look back on. They also look back on the on, on the Cossack period, and the Cossack period in the 17th century was a period in which there was, you know, a great uprising by the Hetman Bogdan Khmelnytsky, and and um, and there was a a Cossack. Uh, capital at Zaporizhia, which is now, you know, uh, uh, one of the places that is contested in the war. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Cossacks eventually agreed to join uh, the Russian Empire as equals. But the Russians, of course, say, no, no. You know, what was happening was that the Russians were protecting the Cossacks and absorbed the Cossack realm. The Ukrainians say, no, this Cossack realm had its independence and so on and so forth. So you have that, um, you have the Ukrainian lands that were in um, Austria-Hungary, you know, Galicia and Valinia, which had, you know, a lot of developments, a lot of interesting developments having to do with uh, Ukrainian nationhood. So, you know, there are a whole series of these things. I mean, one of the things I work on uh, is the um, Holodomor, Mm -hmm. which is the... Uh, famine in 32, 33, in which uh, Stalin, in my view, in the view of other scholars, there's some who disagree, uh, you know, tried to uh, do in the Ukrainian nation uh, in the Holodomor. And I've called it a genocide. And I think it was. Um, I'm still working on that. They're working on that. You know, they're in other words, they were not allowed in the Soviet period at all to talk about Holodomor, about the Holodomor or about the famine. So right. now, you know, you have institutes, you have scholars, you have meetings, you have conferences about the Holodomor, which is now, by the way, um, the 90th uh, anniversary of it. We had a conference at Stanford that I helped organize last spring on Holodomor. So so they 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 have these moments and periods in their history where they're trying to understand, A, who they are as Ukrainians, and B, how the Russians you know, have frequently tried to deny them their nationhood. You know, what's happening now is not new. Mm-hmm. And so this, um, you know, this uh, attempt on the part of Russians to kind of seize control of who, you know, postmodern historians would say seize control of the narrative, right, of right. Of who can say who Ukrainians are and what they consist of uh, and what their culture and their people are like, you know, the... Um, the uh, uh, Ukrainians are taking that narrative back in some fashion. I mean, they've done it for a while now, for the last 25 years, certainly, and more. But but there are many of these moments, including um, you know World War II when Ukrainians fought uh, against, uh, I mean, in some cases they fought with Nazis, but in some cases they also fought against Nazis. In many cases they fought against Nazis, and they fought against uh, the Soviets. So they're trying to take back this World War II narrative as well, which the which the Russians are trying to, to to paint as pure Nazi, which is not true. Um uh and and so all of these things are being done as a way to build one's sense of what it means to be a Ukrainian and who Ukrainians are and why Russians, you know, have been after them for such a long time.
0: Norman, since you mentioned the Holodomor, uh, what is the difference between genocide and ethnic cleansing? Is one just removing a population, relocating it versus eradicating a population? And then let's talk a bit about Azerbaijan and Armenia and what's going on there. Okay,
1: well, well, you got it. Uh, You got the distinction. As far as I'm concerned, ethnic cleansing is primarily about removing a population from a particular territory. You know, you want to get rid of them. I mean, in some cases you rape, you kill you destroy, you maim, you burn. Right, uh, But the main goal, in other words, is to get the people to leave a territory. Right, That, by the way, is precisely what's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh. That's what the Azeris are doing to the Armenians uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. They're driving them out. Uh, they don't want to eliminate them necessarily. They don't want to kill them like the Armenian genocide in, in 1915, uh, but they want them out. Uh, Of what they consider to be their territory. Let me go back to genocide for a second and say there the purpose is quite clear. The intent, which is crucial in any definition of genocide, the intent is to destroy all or part of a people. It's not removing them. It's killing them or eliminating them
0: right so the armenians are fleeing that portion of Azerbaijan because they fear what reprisal losing freedom to use their language
1: worship things like that uh, th- that's why the armenians are fleeing yes and, yes and 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 actual persecution meaning you know their houses are being burned down uh their economic lives are being strangled uh, they can't get supplies uh from armenia uh you know medical supplies and other kinds of things like that so mm-hmm. uh Uh, yes, they're fleeing because they're worried uh, that they won't be able to live uh, in Azerbaijan. Now, I just saw some reports. uh, They're actually Russian reports, so I'm not sure about their accuracy that some Armenians are going back uh, to Karabakh. I I honestly don't know if that's true or not or whether, uh, you know, or, or what the motivations behind that are but uh, no right now uh, we have just seen a um, you know a terrifying campaign of ethnic cleansing there
0: all right let's shift back to ukraine is putin engaging in any kind of ethnic cleansing in ukraine you read stories of people being shot and murdered dams being blown up and things like that damage to infrastructure but is he to extent he's rounding up people I read stories of children for example being rounded up in Ukraine and being being paraded in Moscow uh like cattle if you will but uh but this doesn't strike me the same as say Hitler rounding up millions of people in, in during World War II and shipping them off
1: yes I mean um you know I'm Rue I have to say to uh to equate uh what Putin and the Russians are doing in Ukraine with what Hitler did in Europe you know I mean I just wrote a couple pieces about, you know, what Hitler did in Poland, for example. And um,
0: yeah, I, I think, by the way, Norman, this is a problem, I think, with a lot of public in general. We tend to use Hitler way too casually. Yeah, such I as think such, it, I such think and such is worse it. than Hitler. Well, Hitler's a pretty damn high bar to clear. No, no,
1: this was uh, this was some this was another level yeah. of of intentional mass murder. Not only that, Hitler had complete control right. you know, of his territories and was able you know, to uh, institute a set of programs Mm -hmm. that were, at their very core, more murderous and um, eliminationist. Mm -hmm. So, and this was not just Jews. I mean, I'm also talking about Poles. And actually, I did a piece on Soviet POWs where, you know, 3.2, 3.3 million Soviet POWs were killed first year and a half of the war. I mean, it was awful. It was just awful. And on purpose. I mean, this was purposeful mass murder. So it's a very different. I would say it's a very different kind of thing, and I I don't think the analogies work very well with Hitler. Now, in the case of the uh, children, um, it's a very interesting and difficult and uh, worrisome set of reports uh, that we get about the taking of children, about the kidnapping of children, about the reeducation of children. Um, I mean, uh, Zelensky said, I think, in front of the uh, General Assembly, this may have been a week or two ago, it wasn't very long ago, that they can identify, you know, tens of thousands of children, and that hundreds of thousands more have been taken. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, uh, the Russians, of course, will deny this. They will say they're helping children, right? I mean, that's their tact. Right. They're helping children uh, by removing them from the war zones, uh, you know, especially orphans who have no parents, nobody is to support them, and that they're putting them into camps and things like that, and that they're returning those who want to go back. You know, all of that is is, is you know propaganda. It's it's not it's not the case. But I have to say, I'm hesitant about these numbers and about the hundreds of thousands of children. And I just don't know. And I don't think anyone really knows. I mean, they've been trying really hard and working really hard to keep track, for example, of of the war crimes that have gone on. Right. Uh, and they've identified. I mean, the prosecutor general's office in Kiev is now talking, well, this is last spring, by the way. I haven't seen the newer figures of 80,000 individual war crimes that they have identified. I mean, they've only tried a handful of people, but they've got the names, they've got the crimes, they've got the places. I mean, they're they're working really, really hard, along with, by the way, NGOs, Americans, European Union, uh, and and, and people are working on these issues, but I think it's a little bit early, you know, to um uh to pronounce judgment. You know, right. it's, it's sort of easier to deal with Hitler in the polls right now because we've got documents, we've got, and, and even then there there's controversy, right? But we we can we can come up with some pretty good numbers about what happened. Um, and same thing, obviously, with the Jews in the concentration camp. It's harder in these territories, which are hidden from us, and 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 the actions are hidden from us. Mm -hmm. Again, Ukrainians are doing a really good job trying to keep track. Uh, I mean, one indication that something really nasty is going on is the arrest warrant, which the International Criminal Court placed on Putin and on a woman named Lvova Bielova, who's in charge of the uh, Children's Relief Organization uh, in Russia, And they put this arrest warrant on Putin last July. They would not have done that Mm -hmm. if the ICC, the International Criminal Court, did not have serious evidence that these claims of kidnapping, removing, re-educating children, Ukrainian children in Russia were not true. Now, the extent of it, uh, you know, how widespread it is, uh, whether we re- really can talk, as did Zelensky, about hundreds of thousands of children, I, on- I honestly don't know. And and I, and I, like I said, I'm a little hesitant to pronounce on.
0: You mentioned earlier the holodomor. Um, you seem to suggest there is a question about whether or not it qualifies as genocide. Why? Why would it not qualify?
1: Oh boy! Um, so you know, well, you know, I mean, you know, historians, Bill, they'll argue about everything, and they'll, uh, you know, there are always people who will deny uh, genocide, and uh, you know, the genocides is a, a loaded and important term. I mean, some people think it's so loaded it should be gotten rid of. I don't think so. I think it, you know, makes a lot of sense to have a concept like that in in international uh, judicial affairs. So, for example, I have colleagues uh, in the Soviet history field who say, no, this was not genocide. There was um, a famine, as there was all through the Soviet Union, that uh, people died in Russia, as they did, uh, as well as Ukraine. And that Ukraine was not singled out, that Stalin didn't sort of point to Ukraine and and just starve Ukraine. The whole the whole country was starving, basically at that point. Um, I would argue, on the other hand, and other historians too, and of course Ukrainians now argue vehemently about this, that uh, Stalin and the Soviet leadership had uh, um, adopted a number of measures. Um, said a number of things to each other i mean we've got some letters and we've got a little bit of correspondence not much not much right that indicates that this was purposeful in other words that they stuck it to ukraine in a way that was much more serious than to the rest uh, of the soviet union well
0: stalin saw ukraine that was becoming stronger in terms of cultural autonomy
1: that's right right that's right that's also true yeah. and he killed uh, he ended up killing quite a few uh, members of the intelligentsia in fact the intelligentsia ukrainian intelligentsia was all but wiped out right and even the ukrainian communist party by the end of the 30s was gone i mean all the leaders of the ukrainian communist party basically were purged or sent off into the gulag so it wasn't just the peasants uh, who suffered um, and, you know, the numbers are controversial. Um, I mean, most uh, scholars will use the number 4 million, but right. I have colleagues um, in Ukraine in particular are now using a 10 and a half million number, which I don't think is right, but, you know, it, it, there's still a lot of work to be done on this. Again, you know, people essentially couldn't work on this for a very long time, and the people who did work on it, like our colleague at Hoover, uh, Bob Conquest, who wrote a right. wonderful book, you know on um on the holodomor uh, mm-hmm. on the on the famine um you know had to work from sources that couldn't give him good numbers and the result is uh you know we we're still we're still coming up with things about holodomor that will you know i think nail this down pretty well as genocide but it's going to take some time
0: so the challenge is unlike the holocaust where you can actually point to a meeting that you know occurred and papers that were written, documents, orders issued, you don't don't find
1: that. Although even with the Holocaust, you know, we don't have the kind of direct orders from the top from Hitler saying, you know, go kill them all right now. You know, he he doesn't do that. And there are these conversations, you know, in the fall. I mean, historians have gone over and over this stuff, these conversations in the fall of 1941. You know where the indication is. Yes, it's time to get all of the Jews. Um, just
0: point out, I just point out, Norman, that people can be convicted of murder in this country on very strong circumstantial evidence, which is kind of what you have in this situation of the problem. Right. or That's what right. you
1: just That's you just right. have. All the motives line up. <laughs> That's my view, but 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 again, you you have to remember there are other views of this as well.
0: Do you think that Putin in any way looked back at uh, what happened in the 1930s in Ukraine and is in any ways taking
1: pages out of that playbook? That's a really interesting question. I haven't seen any kind of documentary evidence for that. In other words, uh, they've denied the the Holodomor. In other words, that that you get very strongly uh, from uh, the Russian leadership, that there was a purposeful attempt to get them in genocide. And they've sponsored a whole series, almost a whole industry Mm -hmm. of academic books which show that, uh, you know, the, the the famine in 32, 33 was throughout the Soviet Union, as it was, um, but I haven't seen anything. I do think Putin, uh, un- in, in some fashion, unconsciously, or semi-consciously, I don't know how I would put it, psychologically, represents a kind of history of Russian domination of Ukraine. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? In other words, that it, it, it's less conscious than it is a kind of um, national feeling that he has and others have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen some really horrible, uh, horrible uh, clips, um, <clears throat> you know, on YouTube from various commentators that are much worse than Putin. Right. Um, you know, who have adopted a kind of uh, view of Ukrainians as – inferior as as um not understanding their own position in the world and therefore by the way deserving to die i mean some people have said we have to kill them we have to eliminate a bunch of them i mean some of these commentators on radio and tv so um i I think i think he he kind of represents a, a, a hyper nationalist point of view when it comes to russians thinking about ukrainians not all russians You know, I have plenty of friends who are very quiet right now, but, um, uh, you know, who don't share this point of view. So it's not DNA stuff, but what it is, is it's a part of the the kind of nationalist um, ideology, the Russian nationalist ideology, which can be very nasty, very extreme and very derisive of Ukraine and of Ukrainians. Right. So
0: if you go back and look at Stalin in the 1930s, Norman, he initiates mass scale repression via
1: intimidation, arrests, yes, yes. um, more than intimidation. More. I mean, the word repression. I've been trying to think. I want to try to write about this stuff. No, again, Mm. and the word repression sort of soft. Yeah. And intimidation sort of soft. I mean, it's murderous. Yeah. It's murderous. People are killed. They're sent off, you know, to camps uh, where they are. Um, In some cases intended to die. Right. So so it's a murderous campaign. You know, it's 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 something that is partly eliminatory and therefore, like I said, genocidal. Right. Well, this is why I'm interested about the
0: Putin parallel, because you mentioned, for example, that Stalin uh, executed, or at least Stalin forces executed intellectuals, church leaders, Ukrainian Communist Party leaders. I know this war began back in February 2022, and Putin wanted to decapitate the government in Kiev. And obviously, he failed at that. But do we have evidence of him trying to decapitate other aspects of Ukrainian life, the culture in particular?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a a lot of evidence for, for example, cultural genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, cultural genocide is some is a kind of separate category. I mean, it wasn't included in the actual um, uh, 48 Convention, mm-hmm. but there is this idea that you destroy when you destroy a people when you want to destroy their ability to, you know, to exist. Uh, you also destroy their books, their archives, their libraries. Their churches, their architecture, um, you know, their, their language. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, in Donbass, you don't speak Ukrainian anymore, right? You you right. just you just speak Russian. And, and and you know, were the Russians somehow to win this war, you know, terrible, terrible things could happen uh to not just to Ukrainians, but to their culture and to their language and to their uh, to their cultural attainments, in other words. So yes, I, I think that um, a kind of cultural genocide is part of the is part of the, the Russian program. And um, and again, the program is a, a you know we we don't know how much is run from the top. We don't know exactly what Putin orders or doesn't order. Um, we do know uh, that there are lots of branches of the Russian armed forces that are doing extremely nasty things, not just to Ukrainians in terms of, you know, mowing them down in Bucha and Izium and Mariupol and places like that, uh, uh, but that are purposefully uh, destroying Russian, I mean, Ukrainian um, cultural uh, artifacts. And, and by the way, um, I mean, I have uh, friends who insist that they're also, um, uh, the Russians are trying to destroy archives. That right. is that they're destroying Ukrainian archives, and that they're targeting archives. And therefore, people are very careful about trying to get the archives out <clears throat> so that the Russians can't destroy those. So then walk me through the mixed message here, because on the one hand,
0: I'm crossing your border, invading your country, and I'm telling you that, look, we are descended from the same ancient state in Europe. Brothers, on the other hand, I'm destroying your culture.
1: No, that's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. Um, and, but I think the way the Russians would argue it is that um, they're destroying this false Ukrainian culture mm. that has emerged, not just now, but in the past as well. A kind of false consciousness about who they are. And that the Russians know who they are better than the Ukrainians know who they are. And so, yes, the, the Ukrainians are us and they belong to us. And we are part of the same world. But know what those no goods in the Ukraine have done um, is to um, kind of alter the, the real Ukraine and, and introduced a false Western one. You know, sometimes when they deal with Western Ukraine, you know, Western Ukraine is uh, can be considered and has a a very different history than um, than the bulk of Ukraine. It was absorbed into the Soviet Union only in thirty nine uh, forty, and then again after the war. So, a place like Lviv, for instance, which is you know was a important piece of the austro-hungarian empire and ukrainian national consciousness that developed there and things like that i mean russians would probably say you know well that's not exactly us you know they they did develop differently there i mean again it's a complicated historical picture ukraine is not a an easy historical unit to deal with i mean geographically it is but not not culturally Uh, and so uh you know, I think I think probably the more sophisticated Russian policymakers would would make some differentiations there. The less sophisticated ones, you know, Ukrainians are us and and they, they've just run rabid. They're now neo-Nazis and following American wishes and and, um, you know, don't don't deserve uh, to have their own government in their own state.
0: So let's close on two things, Norman. First of all, let's talk about Putin's future as a war criminal. He, as you mentioned in March, the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for him. Uh, He was charged with a war crime of unlawful deportation and transfer of population, which was the children you mentioned paraded in Moscow. Uh, Now, the UN General Assembly could step in here if it wanted to. It did this with Rwanda and Yugoslavia when um, when it came to what was going on in those countries. But we know that Russia sits on the Security Council. It would block that. But what does it mean for Putin moving forward, Norman, other than it just complicates his travel plans?
1: Well, first of all, it does complicate his travel plans. So that's yes. important. I mean, don't uh, I wouldn't see, he could it. go to he could go to a country like South Africa and there he'd be arrested. Right. Yes, exactly. And he didn't go. Right. I mean, he he appeared at the BRICS meeting, mm-hmm. um, you know, by by Zoom. Right. Uh, and uh, he did not go, and the South Africans indicated they might have to arrest him. Mm-hmm. And please don't come, <laughs> so they put us in that position because uh, they didn't want to arrest him. Um, so it does tr- complicate his travel plans, and it complicates his future. I mean, he is, you know, been been. Uh, there's an arrest warrant for him as a war criminal, and you're right; it's mostly right. about this this issue having to do with the transfer of children, the forcible transfer of children they're not just transferred they're they're removed um uh, forcibly um and so he is a war criminal i you know i don't know exactly how that will play out in the future i'm a pretty good historian i'm not a very good seer mm-hmm. you know but um uh, i guess i think um it makes life more difficult for him now the the business of the uh, UN and the General Assembly, I don't think that's going to work. I mean, the reason right. we have an ICC, the International Criminal Court, is for them to do this. Right. And they're doing a really good job. I mean, they're really collecting a lot of evidence and they're working closely with the Ukrainians. And at some point, I mean, they're going to come up with an indictment that will knock your socks off uh, of Putin. I, I'm convinced of that. Um, And that will, you know, even complicate his life even more because there's going to be some really hard facts and some, you know, a lot of testimony and stuff like that. But it takes time. It just takes time for them to do that. The issue, you know, about a special court really has to do with the war of aggression, the issue of the war of aggression, which is an international crime, which Putin has clearly committed, as have the Russian leadership. And they can't do that through the ICC. And so many people, myself included, have tried to, you know, say, okay, let's take this to the General Assembly. Blinken, too. Secretary Blinken wanted to do this. Take it to the General Assembly and have the General Assembly set up a special court. That's still on the docket. It's possible. You don't need to go through the Security Council for that. You can go through the General Assembly. But it's extremely complicated. And, uh, you know, I mean, the Netherlands has agreed to pay for the court. Uh, the U.S. is pushing uh, for such a court, you know, to, to try them for aggressive war, which, after all, is what we tried the Nazis for at Nuremberg. We didn't try the Nazis at Nuremberg. I right. mean, crime against humanity and war crimes were mentioned, but the main thing was aggressive war. Right. Um, and so, you know, the the story's not done. The, the story of the international courts and how they're going to deal with Putin and the Russians is not over. And who knows? Maybe one fine day we'll see Putin in The Hague. You know, I didn't know, you know, Milosevic managed to to stay away for a very long time, but eventually there was Milosevic in The Hague. So, you know, let's not exclude it.
0: Okay. okay. And a final question, Norman. Uh, there's still a lot to play out with this war. Uh, there's drama here in the United States over funding which ties to what I mentioned at the beginning of the show about Congress being messed up. The president wants to send billions more to Ukraine. The temporary spending bill they did to keep the government operating for the next 40 or so days does not include any Ukraine money in it, so it's got to be resolved at some point between now and mid-November. There's the question of the counteroffensive and what's going on there, if there'll be a Russian counteroffensive and so forth. I'm not going to ask you to predict how this war is going to play out, but I would like to ask you as a historian, the question about how history will be taught about this war if you're a Ukrainian child and you're learning about both your country but also the history of Eastern Europe how does this fit into that larger narrative
1: I'm I'm, I'm sorry I, I didn't get the essence of the question so it's it's oh. the it's how you, does it then, at,
0: some, at some point this war is settled in some way. It's resolved. There is an an easy agreement hammered out or something like that. There's no longer a state of war. Ukrainian children go back to a more normal life and they're in school now and they're being taught history. So I'm curious just about how you think this war folds into the larger history of both Ukraine and Eastern Europe because we've talked about a lot. We've talked about World War II. We've talked about ancient Russian empires and so forth. I'm just curious about how this very
1: recent chapter fits into that. Well, I think this is in some fashion you know, the most important uh, uh, set of events that Ukraine, as Ukraine, uh, you know, will experience, uh, let's hope, uh, nothing worse anyway, uh, you know, in the modern period. I mean, basically what's happened, I mean, World War II in Ukraine was awful, and, you know, it has its own misery assigned to it. Um, But this is really, as I mentioned before, about Ukrainian nation building, Mm -hmm. And about creating an entity, a political entity, a nation, a nation-state, you know, which can endure. And the Ukrainians have demonstrated, I think, in the war, that this is what they're, you know, what they're about. That they have not split apart. They have not, you know, divided into, you know, competing camps. Instead, what they have shown is an incredible willingness and dedication and readiness, you know, to be a unified, sovereign, democratic nation. That, I think, is just huge and will play a role in the future schoolbooks, you know, however the war ends, right? I mean, the Russians are not gonna win the war, I'm not sure Ukrainians are going to drive the Russians out completely. Right. The point is, however, it, it, there will be a Ukraine. And that Ukraine is going to look back on this war and say, we really did it. You know, we talked about, uh, we talk in the States about the greatest generation, you know, whether they're the greatest generation or not, some different kinds of questions. But, you know, World War II in some fashion, you know, set the tone, probably for you and for me, about what the United States is about. You know, in a lot of ways, I mean, you can go back to Civil War, you can go back to the Revolutionary War, but what do I look to? You know, my dad fought in the Second World War. You know, and and that set a certain kind of sense of what the, the United States was about. We fought a just war, right? And we won it. And then we helped the losers, you know, get back on their feet. and And that defines us in a certain kind of way. Right. And the Ukrainians are going to be defined by their incredible ability and i think they understand it already i mean they understand it already that they've done something quite miraculous which is which is to come together when they weren't necessarily together um, and to unify when they weren't necessarily unified and to think ukrainian when they didn't necessarily think ukrainian you know through this process and i think that will be really really important in them in their school books. And for for me, as an historian, again, as I mentioned, you know, you study things like the making of the Polish nation or the making of Germany or, you know, the making of of, uh, Italy. You know, this is why I'm teaching the kids here. You know, the 1861 Italy was created. Well, how did the country come about, you know, as a real country? Well, it takes process, it takes development, it takes challenges, and it takes responding to the challenges. And Ukraine has responded to that challenge in really extraordinary ways. So I think that that's the center of the historical lesson. Hey, okay, Norman,
0: it's now 6.30 in Italy. I've kept you for almost an hour now. You must be hungry. Tell me you're going
1: out for some good Italian food. You're not saying, Well, I'm supposed meals. to call my wife and we're going to start with an aperitif and then we'll see where we go from there. Fantastic. Yeah, The food's fantastic. I can't uh, complain.
0: Norman, I can't complain about this podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time. I really enjoyed the
1: topic. Yeah, I enjoyed talking to you as well, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Norman.
0: You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and X feeds. X, of course, is the new name for Twitter. Our X handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled H O O V E R I N S T at Hoover Inst. I mentioned our website beginning of the show. That is hoover.org. While you're there, you should sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which keeps you updated on what Norman Neymark and his Hoover colleagues are up to. That's emailed to you weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care.